Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Private Parts Unknown. A podcast that explores love and sexuality around the world. I'm Courtney Kosak. And I'm Sophia Alexandra. And we are so excited to be back. Yeah, we are. Boop, boop, boop. Woo! You guys, it's been a while. We've missed you. But we are dropping Helsinki starting next week, baby. You know it. Um, And we're going to be back weekly now. So... If we triggered anybody's abandonment issues. So sorry. I get it. I don't have a dad. I'm real sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But we are coming back for you now. We don't want you to. We went and we actually got cigarettes and came back. How crazy is that? (laughs) (laughs) We just had to go all the way to Helsinki, but we're back. So They're very fancy cigarettes. We have a bunch of Helsinki episodes for you guys. We also have a bunch of YouTube stuff and I, some videos that really made us laugh. So I think some real funny ones of us trying to pronounce things in Finnish, falling into a, a an ice hole, trying to dissect graffiti. Yeah, it's some, some real, some real, some real good stuff. <laughs> so we've got stuff on YouTube. We're gonna have a bunch of uh, social media stuff. So make sure you're following us at Private Parts Unknown on IG. And uh, the problem is, is that everybody in Helsinki was amazing and we got like hours and hours of great footage and we've been trying to put it together in a way that's just like going to do it justice. So we're so excited to finally drop it on you. It took so long, but you guys, we booked in a way where we allowed for some error. We, we allowed for someone that we interviewed to have an off day. Maybe. Yeah. We are like, some people might be duds. No one. No one was anything other than amazing. Yeah, so we we would didn't call the champagne problem. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we're super stoked to have Helsinki basically in the can now, and now we're looking forward to upcoming trips. Yeah, we're, we're going to be going to New York and Japan. Yeah, New York is literally this month, like in a couple weeks. So yeah, if you're New following York's us soon. on social, you're you're going to see New York unfold just before you even know it. And if you have any. Uh, suggestions of guests we should interview in New York or in Tokyo, holler at us. What's our uh, email court? Privatepartsunknown at gmail.com. And also, if you have sightseeing wrecks, we love a good tourist wreck. Yeah, and we love um, a weird wreck, and we love a food wreck, especially me. I plan to get fat on this trip, as I always do. Sophia ate reindeer in Helsinki. And it was so fucking good. At first, I felt bad, but then I was like, no, it tastes too good. Those animals are majestic. I know. I know. Majestically delicious. I feel horrible. And yet the best. It was the best loin. I can't even. It was so tender. Micah tried it too, right? Did he like it? Yeah, he did. And I had elk meatballs too. I had a terrible, I'm having PTSD right now from a horrible restaurant experience, which we will tell you guys about in a future episode. Not good. (laughs) <laughs> it's actually hilarious. I've never seen a waiter be so rude to anyone. I guess we'll just tell you now. Yeah. I got scolded. I got scolded by a male waiter 
for resting my eyes. She literally was so tired after a whole day. We're like eating a nice dinner there. We're paying money, you know, whatever. Uh, Micah has a camera. We look like we're like legit people, you know? And Courtney just closed her eyes and he was like, you can't sleep here. It's like, sir, I have my period, you know? (laughs) She wasn't feeling good. And he was like, he said it twice. He came back and he was like, seriously, you can't sleep here. I thought he was kidding because he was Yeah, we laughed. We were like, ha ha. And he's like, no, I'm serious. And we're like, she's not sleeping. She doesn't feel well. So she closed her eyes and you couldn't have it. And then I was like, this is a really nice restaurant. How often do people come and just sleep here? Like, did he he think we were homeless or something? I don't know. With like really nice camera equipment. It was just so confusing what he thought was going on to me. I'm like, what, what? How often do people We're come to this nice- We're not just going to like set up our camp here. Like, But also, how often do people come to this nice ass restaurant to just sleep that he has to like do this again? He's like, oh no, I got sleepers again. That's I really ridiculous. feel like that, like he was just like, this is how I feel about Americans. You are trash. <laughs> I'm going to put you in your place. I don't know. I'm editorializing here, but I did not get a good vibe from that man. I did not enjoy he that. It was super rude. It was pretty funny. In addition to- all the amazing Helsinki content. Actually, a nice home for our new Helsinki content is our brand spanking new website. Blah, blah, blah. Sorry. <laughs> Please don't unfollow us. Yeah, the website's great. It's privatepartsunknown.com, obviously. Go there. Not to brag, but it's beautiful. It's going to have show notes. It's where you sign up for the mailing list. It's going to be a nice hub, and we're going to continue to nurture it like a little flower. Yes, and we will also be posting more in our secret Facebook group called Private Private Parts Unknown. Oh, yeah. So get in there. Especially, yeah, when we go to New York. Mm-hmm. That's when we're really hopping on the Private Private Parts Unknown Facebook group. So you better join. You get like two weeks. So you guys, before we return with Helsinki. We got a really great guest. So we had, I mean, we basically had to. This week we have Samantha Allen. She just wrote a book. It's called Real Queer America. Get the book. Get, let me listen to the episode, but also get the freaking book, right? The book is great, and I recommend the audio version. You'll hear why later. Samantha is a queer trans woman, an amazing journalist, reporter for the Daily Beast, um, and she basically- Took a six-week road trip. Yeah, in, in this post-Trump hellscape that we've been living in. I think she was inspired to, she'll she'll explain exactly the whole motivation, but was inspired to take a six-week road trip through what What people call flyover states. Yeah, which is such a shitty thing to say. You guys were assholes. Don't ever say that again. Yeah. Let's all ban flyover states. It's, yeah, that's super judgmental. And what's great about it is she actually found thriving LGBT pockets. Yeah, these queer communities are incredible and like inspiring. The one that really made an impression on me is her talking about uh, Provo, Utah, which is where she, uh, when she was Mormon, she lived there and then left and coming back and finding that it's so different. And there's like a home for youth where they can feel comfortable and in what seemed crazy to me until I read her book, be Mormon and LGBT at the same time, which is nuts. You have to read that. Yeah, so- I mean, really her whole book makes a case for why it's like actually pretty dope to be queer in red states. And I think that that is not the stereotype, right? That's not the prevalent view, no. People don't really think uh, of it as a possibility. Like she was warned that she would, you know, 
die and people say that stuff to queer people moving to places like uh, Bloomington and stuff like that all the time. She also acknowledges a a fair amount of privilege in her book, which I thought was really like an important thing to raise is just like, you know, as a white white woman, you know. Yeah, she definitely says that the black experience is uh, proven when she interviews another person in the book that the black experience, if you're queer, trans or any of those things is uh, very different. So we were super lucky to interview her. She was in town for the LA Festival of Books because she fancy. But yeah, we were super excited to get to talk to her. And there was an extra special little feature. Yeah, that really extra delicious morsel is we got to meet her wife, Corey, who you'll hear on the podcast. And if you read the book, uh, you'll read the Bloomington chapter, which is where they fell in love. And it is beautiful. And she also wrote a whole book about falling in love with Corey, right, Corey? Oh, my God. Their relationship is so cute. Yes. Samantha wrote a book. It's called Love and Estrogen. Um you guys, we didn't know Corey was coming, but they have like such a cute energy together. And we say radiate just like love and peace together. It, it's it was pretty amazing to have them both. It was amazing to have them both. And then we just like liked to them. We just wanted to talk to them for like 90 minutes afterwards. Yeah, so. we were just delighting in their presence. And I think you will, too. Yeah, you guys are going to love this. Here we go. Oh my God, you guys, we are so excited to be here with today's guest, Samantha Allen, author of Real Queer America. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on this sunny, beautiful Los Angeles Saturday. I know. We were like, how does she feel about LA? (laughs) Courtney was like, okay, I've read the book, but does she still think, does she think LA is the best now? She's been here for three days. I'm like, I don't think you get the point of the book. The first day I got here, I had to drive from Silver Lake to Santa Monica back to Silver oh, Lake. That's not that a good experience. That was the entire day. Like, oh, for sure. That was it. I was done. I just like went to sleep after that, basically. Yeah. yeah. Sunny car ride, though. Eh? Courtney. <laughs> just a heavy pitch over here for Los Angeles. <laughs> um, okay. So the book was amazing. I hate to give this man credit for anything good, but was there some Donald Trump inspiration for the book? Yeah, I mean, sort of inadvertently, I guess. You know, Corey and I, my wife, who's who's here and might chime in on occasion, we were living in Florida at the time of the election, and Florida went for Trump, and that was one of the many deciding factors in Trump becoming elected. And uh, gosh, you know, after that happened, I started seeing some sentiment from friends on the coast of like, gosh, the red states, they're holding us back. All of our blue state taxes go to pay for their social programs, but then they go and do something like elect Donald Trump. And having had the experiences that I've had in states like Georgia, Florida, Indiana, Tennessee, as an out queer transgender woman, uh, I didn't think that was fair to the LGBT communities, especially in these states. I knew there were a lot of progressive people who were trying to stop that election result from happening and who will help transform the country in the future. I think that's like such a big point. If everybody leaves, then there's no way you can make progress. And the way to like make a place that, you know, you like a larger place that you like is to stay and to kind of spread Mm -hmm. that message and 
Yeah. Be yourself. Yeah. You know, I one of my favorite people I met while writing this book, her name was Smooth, S-M-O-L-V. Oh, I know her. Yeah. I've done stand-up at the back door. Oh, I was really? just there last month. Wow. She is incredible. She's the best. When I met her, she was wearing this t-shirt that said solid gold clit and like gold leaf. It was <laughs> yeah. incredible. And Smooth used to live in the Bay Area, like worked for a bank. I, this was during the George W. Bush presidency. And when she said like, I want to move back to Indiana, all her friends were like, no, don't do that. That's insane. You'll, you'll get shot there or something like that. And Smooth was like, no, she moved back to Indiana and now she manages this amazing LGBT nightclub, the back door. And she's like, look, the, this place needs me a lot more than the Bay area needs another one of me. Oh yeah. Be a, a bigger fish in a smaller pond and make this huge impact just by being in a place that you love one time when i was at the back door they had a beyonce off between all the drag queens and you then had to vote for the best beyonce and i think i texted you that night courtney and i was like this is the best night of my life a video from that because it was that place is incredible yes it's uh, it has like zebra print walls there's like a gilded portrait of dolly parton there the restrooms are like filled with political slogans and yeah, it's just an amazing, amazing place. That's one thing that you talk about in the book about how much stronger these communities are in rural America. Can you kind of speak to that? How like the different letters of the acronym like hang out way more than they would in LA or New York or a big city like that. Yeah, there's like only one place to go in a lot of these towns, you know, in Jackson, Mississippi, for example, there's like one major LGBT nightclub. So everyone has to go there. And when you go to like LGBT nightlife in LA or New York, often it's like stratified by race or gender, or sexuality, that kind of thing. There's some very specific type of bar that everyone can go to. You know, here's where the rich lesbians go. Here's where <laughs> the leather people go. In, in Jackson, Mississippi, you can't sit back and consult a huge menu of options. You just have one bar to go to. And so it kind of forces everybody to brush shoulders. And then as it turns out, people like that. They like having more of that diversity and more of that kind of um, intimacy with with the community. It's interesting that you say diversity because that's like not what you would expect, but that's exactly what it is. Because it's even like sometimes in the bigger cities, it'll be like racially divided, which you point out yeah. in, in your your book as well. Um, I love the quote, I think Adam Sims in Utah, the oppression um, and opposition can build the most beautiful connections. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, I think, you know, oftentimes in red states, people are really aware of the stakes of uh, LGBT rights, you know, in a state like Georgia, where the state legislature, like, every year they're coming for you, like whether you like it or not, they're, they're going to come at you with some sort of anti-LGBT bill. And when you live with that knowledge, it makes you a little less complacent and it makes you kind of stick together a little better. And because in a lot of these states, you know, cisgender, gay and lesbian folks haven't gotten their full rights yet, uh, the entire LGBT community has to kind of come up together. Mm. Whereas in a place like Massachusetts, for example, you get same-sex marriage rights way out ahead of transgender rights, and it kind of splits up the community a little bit more. That makes a lot of sense. And I think you mentioned that like queer is a big umbrella versus like, uh, you know, gay. Uh, Smooth mentions that gay used to be just, you know, really white, straight guys or whatever. Yeah. And that she was 
picturing her bar as like a queer place for like everybody queer. And that's kind of what made me think a lot about when you're talking about in these communities that people have to band together because there is just that umbrella because they have to band together. Yeah, no, and I love that about the back door. And you can feel that when you walk into a space. I mean, when you go into it, like one of our favorite nightclubs when we lived in South Florida was called Twist. Mm-hmm. It's this like seven room nightclub, but it's very much like this is a club for gay men in Miami Beach. And you can you feel that the second you walk through the door. Um, but at a place like the back door, you really feel like, hey, everybody can come here. You took the six-week road trip. What are some surprising LGBT-friendly cities and towns? Like, what were some of your favorites that you discovered? And and you had experience living in quite a few, actually. Yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of the places were places I had spent time before. Provo, Utah, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, or like Johnson City, Tennessee is a place that I visited all the time when I lived in Georgia. Uh, Indi- Bloomington, Indiana is where I met Corey. So I was going to a lot of personal landmarks. I think the places that ended up being the most meaningful to me, though, were the places I hadn't been before. I think the Rio Grande Valley for me was the most special part mm. of the book because you have this really impoverished part of the country. It's also like this nexus of the current political climate around immigration under the Trump administration. And gosh, it just feels kind of like a pressure cooker down there. And yet the people that I met there, the LGBT people were just so amazing, welcoming, vibrant, wonderful folks. We were joking about it at the beginning, but you make a point that it should be like obvious, but uh, it's that like a lot of people don't want to leave. You, we think, oh, you know, if you're queer in that part of the country, like you would definitely want to get out. Yeah. <laughs> but but you make a great point that a lot of people want to stay. And then I found it so interesting that like you found fa- you had really great healthcare in this place that doesn't seem like it would be that welcoming, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, I was fortunate to have. Uh, transgender inclusive healthcare through my university, Emory, uh, which had gotten kind of ahead of the pack in terms of offering trans healthcare. And I, I attribute that in the book to that kind of red state LGBT mindset because, it, uh, you know, LGBT rights were kind of spearheaded under my friend Michael Shutt at Emory University. And as soon as he got the job as the director of the Office of LGBT Life at Emory, he was like, let's start a trans discussion group. Let's get the president of the university to cover trans healthcare. Let's get the president of the university to do this, put trans folks in the non-discrimination policy, like that kind of thing. And as a result, he got some of that stuff included before like Northeastern Ivy League schools had. And I think that's because Michael has this attitude of like, I can't leave trans folks behind. I'm in a position of privilege to do something about it. Let me do something about it. So when I came out in 2012 in Atlanta, like I wasn't aware necessarily of all the resources that were there. And I come out to Michael and he's just like, oh, nope, here's where you go for hormones. Here's where you go for mental health care. Here's where you go for surgery. You're all set. It's like, okay, wow. That's incredible. In the middle of Georgia. Yeah. It's totally incredible. And like, it has to make a transition that much easier and like more 
possible really right i mean to have that kind of support and not be like fighting the system every fucking step of the way yeah and i mean i really feel for like trans folks living in more rural areas where that kind of healthcare is like less accessible Uh, i think the good news is we're starting to see more and more like lgbt inclusive hubs across the red states so even if you have to get out of a rural area you can go to the nearest you know, St. Louis or Norfolk, Virginia or Atlanta or that kind of thing to find resources for you. So we're sitting here with your love. Oh, <laughs> so cute. Which, as Sophia was saying, makes a, a, an appearance in the book for sure. Uh, you definitely have an impact, Corey. And seeing Bloomington through the eyes of somebody who fell in love there is really like was a beautiful story. I mean, you're a really amazing writer, but I think especially your prose like sings when you're talking about how magical that time was and to read that love story. It's also kind of a nerd's dream, Uh you know, like falling in love in the book stacks and stuff. Um, I was very into this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Tell our listeners a little bit more about your adorable relationship. Sure. We can kind of tell this story together. Um, I got a fellowship to study for my dissertation at the Kinsey Institute in the summer of 2013. The Kinsey Institute's named after Alfred Kinsey, who came up with the Kinsey scale zero to six from like exclusively homosexual to exclusively heterosexual. Um, so his, his collections are housed in Bloomington. So I show up in Bloomington, not knowing anyone. I had rented some small basement apartment for like a few weeks to do this research. Thought this was gonna be a pretty lonely summer. Um, And then I go to the reading room and on the other table in the reading room, there's this beautiful curly haired goddess with tortoise shell glasses and red lips. And we kind of just look at each other a little bit for three days and not say anything. And then do you want to take it from there? Well, it was funny because I was there as an undergrad and I had a a grant from my school to research feminist pornography. So we were kind of like in our own like bat caves of smut, like her her looking at fetishes and like all the variety. And when I was, we have a five year difference between us. I'm younger. And she was like, who is this like assistant professor? I'm like a senior (laughs) in in college. Um, And... The first like real time that I, I mean, I obviously noticed her as soon as I got there, but there was this really old like 1970s photocopier in the reading room that like you had to insert coins to use. I love that. And old Samantha, school library yeah. shit. <laughs> Samantha was wearing this like, uh, like jade green, like polyester dress that was like kind of short. <laughs> Um, Are you cringing about the fashion? (laughs) Yes, my fashion has evolved a little bit. Not much. Now it's Lululemons all the time. (laughs) But um, so she had to like bend over to like put these coins in. And I was like, ooh, like look at this booty. Like who is this girl? And And then we got into the elevator at the same time one day. And then we were like, hi. Uh, and then had dinner, and then we never spent a night apart after that. Oh, mm-hmm. I this love is that. So it sweet. was like really, yeah. It was a homo true, a true homo love story. True homo. That should be the title of the book, I think. <laughs> and now you guys make your home 
So we have been in Seattle for the last six months, and it's weird because it's a very blue state city, but it's not necessarily like... You don't have to apologize. Yeah. No, I was no. just there, and it's a <laughs> little fucked up. But we, yeah, we yeah. like being L- our LGBT selves more in a place like Georgia or Florida than we do in a place like Seattle. I literally do not feel recognized in Seattle. I feel like... Uh, like, it's just kind of like a fake feeling of like people being like really progressive. Mm. But, um, the biggest pull for us is that we have family there. We have like natural beauty was something we really wanted to live next to and be able to hike. And so it is gorgeous. Yeah. Like the quality of life is great, but it is, it is weird to be in a city that is not really that diverse at all and also like has all these progressive politics on the surface but it comes with a lot of its own issues yeah I definitely agree with that assessment I I'm like really I'm going to Atlanta in a few days and I'm just like finally a city where I can like feel great being queer which is ironic because Seattle has a huge LGBT population but I don't know sometimes it can feel clicky or 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 just inaccessible um (laughs) And right outside of Seattle, like all those little towns are like very conservative. Yeah. I did comedy in like Chelan and Wenatchee. And like after one show, two people came up to me and they're like, thanks for being Jewish here. We're the only two Jews in (laughs) Chelan. Wow. (laughs) And I was like, cool. (laughs) You're welcome. I don't know. And I mean, that's why sometimes the blue state, red state divide really does a disservice to our understanding of the country. You know, like on the night of the presidential election, we see the map and entire states are just shaded in a single color. Yeah. And really it's more of a, like a rural urban divide with more blue urban areas. And so I think the two things to take away from that are often, I think folks in blue states don't necessarily realize how, how red the areas around them are. And then folks in blue states also don't think about how red states are also dotted with these pockets of liberal and progressive acceptance. Totally. I mean, it's so interesting that you call out that about Seattle because that's so true and I think it's easy to live in these places and be in a bubble and think like everything is more progressive than it is is it just about awareness what are I think like road trips go literally (laughs) literally go to these places like I I I don't just fly yeah, over them. Yeah. <laughs> Drive to them. Right. Like I, I had preconceptions about a lot of these places before I moved there. I had never lived in the South before I moved to Georgia in 2010. And gosh, I thought, Oh, people in the South, they're like, they're all just backwards hillbillies. And like, I'm, I'm going to be surrounded by uneducated buffoons. Right. Like that, those are the sort of biases that you can get on the West coast or in the Northeast, which was where I had lived before I moved to Georgia. And then I go to Georgia and I'm like, Oh, this is amazing. The people here are great. Uh, and I was, I was the, the buffoon to be judging them before I even got here. But even then, you know, when I had a friend invite me to go to Johnson city, Tennessee, I was like, oh, Johnson City, Tennessee, like Atlanta's okay, but that's Tennessee. And then I go to Johnson City, Tennessee, and I'm just like delighted by it. So I think, I think let go of presumptions and assumptions and discover places. And not just like the hot place of the moment, like Nashville was a couple of years mm-hmm. ago or something like that. Like literally go on a road trip 
take I-40 or I-60 or something or 20 and go across the South. Like it's an amazing experience and you'll find stuff that you wouldn't have been able to plot out in advance. I love that. That's great advice. I want to talk about a little bit about your coming out because you were, you were 25 and you wrote in the book that you didn't feel brave. You felt like a coward. Can you kind of explain like where you were at? Cause it seems pretty brave to come out at yeah. 25. I think it's one of those things where fr- from the outside, a trans person's transition can feel seem like an act of bravery. And it is in a lot of ways, like it's hard to transition publicly and visibly and be exposed to stares from strangers and that kind of thing. At the same time, internally, you know that you've been grappling with it for so long that you're like, I should have done this like seven years ago. Like, so by Uh. the time you finally get to the point where like you come out and transition, it's like you've been running away from this like thing that's chasing you and you're finally like okay like I'm just gonna lie down and let the bear eat me which is I realize a really violent metaphor for (laughs) a gender transition but it's let the trans bear eat me (laughs) yes let the gender dysphoria bear wrap its jaws around my neck savage But yeah, I, it sort of feels like that. And I think that speaks to how hard it is to be a, a trans person in the world that people don't want to come out until they absolutely feel like they have no other choice. And I think we're seeing that change a little bit uh-huh. among younger generations. But for me, I'm 32 now. I transitioned when I was 25. That it definitely didn't feel possible to me until then. Do you think the media, like how much recent media we've seen i mean your transition was prior to like the big yeah uh, shows coming out and stuff but do you think that like trickles down even to like middle america and has an impact on you know like if you see somebody living a happy life who's transitioned like maybe that's possible for you yeah no i think seeing stuff like laverne cox on orange is the new black or or just seeing her i am jazz yeah i am jazz on tlc that definitely unlocks something for people but i think the more lasting organic change comes from trans kids especially in these areas like coming out to their parents at our earlier ages and having parents who belong to generations who are more LGBT mm. accepting. And I, th- I think a lot of change, I think it happens from the top down and from kind of the bottom up simultaneously. Uh, but I mean, the media moment can be a double-edged sword too, because I sort of felt like I was slipping in under the radar when I was transitioning in 2012. No one cared where I went to the bathroom in 2013. And that wasn't a topic of national conversation the way it became after North Carolina passed a bathroom bill. And then suddenly same-sex marriage was legal. The anti-LGBT groups pivoted to attacking trans people and trans people were in the media. And so you have a lot of, you know, like anti-LGBT people being having this like really virulent reaction to seeing that. And then there was this real backlash, I think, against trans rights that manifested itself in the flurry of bathroom bills that we saw proposed around the country. And so I was sort of thinking when I came out, like, oh, I'm just going to quietly transition, like update my markers, same-sex marriage will be legal, I'll marry Corey, then like everything will be great. And now, you know, se- seven years later, like, 
we're in the still in the middle of this like anti-trans backlash. You guys have been together for how long? Six years this June. So basically you transitioned right after you guys met? Nine months before we met each other. So we met when Samantha was kind of like in like a year in kind of early in her transition. And I was like, oh, who's this little baby bird? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so sweet. I love when I hear stories and I actually hear it pretty frequently where several of the trans people I know have had partners that have kind of been there from the beginning. And it seems just like, I don't know, such a beautiful, supportive way to go through that process. Corey jokes that she uh, created me. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that is not not podcast friendly. (laughs) I mean, it was definitely like I'm in Indiana, Bloomington, like we, although we had this really magical time there, uh, that's not to say that I was never concerned about safety for Samantha. Um, like there were definitely days where she, if we were going to a target or wherever, where she would get a really dirty looks. And I was afraid if we kind of veered off too far from that town, that that could escalate. So that, so there was a different element, like in the first year of our relationship in that way. And it, it wasn't, I mean, that also carried over to a place like New York, too. Like, it wasn't just red states, but, yeah, there was that element of, like, okay, I, I, I want to be a protector, not, like, save her. But, like, it was, it was important to me um, to, like, make sure that she felt protected. It's amazing. My hero. Oh, <laughs> you guys. So I want to, I think we both want to talk a little bit about love and estrogen a little bit and kind of the Mormon impact. Sure on your gender identity and how, yeah, and kind of the journey? Yeah. Um, love and Estrogen is this little ebook that I wrote about falling in love with Corey. It's uh, it's much shorter than Real Queer America. So if you look at Real Queer... <laughs> it's honestly better than Real Queer America. <laughs> unbiased. Completely unbiased. <laughs> I'm She's like, no big deal. I inspired one of those. I, so. I think they're both great. And I encourage you to buy both of them. <laughs> For the record. But yeah, um, I uh, wrote that about falling in love with Corey, but also about kind of the process of finding myself and transitioning while simultaneously falling in love with this, you know, queer woman from Long Island uh, sitting to my right. And coming out from the context of Mormonism was was really hard. Mormonism teaches you like gender is eternal, it's fixed, you're male or female, that's it. Like it was assigned to you before you were even born, uh, which is like a huge burden to put on somebody. So when you're growing up in that tradition, you think, gosh, I couldn't possibly be a gender other than the one that I'm treated as and that's listed on my birth certificate. I had no vocabulary to understand Mm. what was going on. I think I saw some like Time Magazine article in like 1996 about some trans high schooler or something that, but I kind of like saw that and I was like, huh, but growing up in a Mormon tradition, you're like, oh, wow, that freak is going to high school. Like you internalize all of this transphobia. Um, And it wasn't until college, I guess, after I had already left Mormonism because I was kind of grappling with my gender, not knowing what it meant that I happened upon the vocabulary like transgender or that I learned that there even was such a thing as hormone therapy. Like the conceptions that you're fed of being transgender 
are like, oh, you get wheeled into a hospital room as a man and you get wheeled out as a woman <laughs> after like $100,000 worth of surgery or something. I had no idea that you can just like literally put different hormones in your body and it changes your body and your brain chemistry and like so much stuff. And so that kind of unlocked some stuff for me. And it sort of took me like four years after I had already parted ways with Mormonism to come out as trans. I think it's crazy that you went to Brigham Young. <laughs> I think it's nuts when you talk about it in the book and when you talk about the Mormon tradition. And also, like, it's kind of one of the my favorite parts because I didn't know that much. And I didn't know how much work had been done to change it. And, like, Emmett and that whole part of your book where you... Uh, can you talk a little bit about how somebody can still love Mormonism and be a Mormon and be queer? Yeah, that's one of the things I really wanted to find out while while writing it. Because when I left the church in like 2007, I didn't think it was possible for me to you know, explore my gender while staying within this institution. And I also left for kind of a variety of like personal, philosophical, political, intellectual reasons that like, were sort of intertwined with gender stuff, but also separate from it in some ways. And so it was interesting to go back to Utah like 10 years later and meet folks who don't have some of the issues that I have with the church and are like, yeah, I, I love the church. I wouldn't be myself without being a member of this church. And I'm also trans. And that's the church's problem to figure out. It's not my problem to figure out. Wow, I that's so powerful. Like blown away by that stance. And uh, the more that I've talked to LGBT current Mormons, uh, I've been really kind of encouraged to see their resilience at a really heartbreaking time when they're waiting for some kind of policy change uh, from the church that, to be honest, I think would probably take 20 years to get here. But they're saying, well, let's stick around and um, and lead by example that we can be you know, faithful members of the church and LGBT. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's interesting to me because I left the Mormon church 10 years ago, but in a lot of ways, like Mormons can still be my people, you know, they're the ones who want to drink Diet Coke at the bar or who want to like play a board game or something like that. You know, when I got to a certain age, everyone was like, let's hang out on Friday. And I'm like, cool, what are we doing? Are we going to like play mini golf or like what's <laughs> going to happen? And they're like, oh, we're going to go to a bar and then we're going to drink. And then once we get sick of looking at the walls in that bar, we'll go to another bar and do the same thing. And I'm like, that doesn't sound like fun at all. So I sort of, I, I say that like, I don't believe in Mormonism, but like, I miss it a little bit. I miss the like, I don't know, You're the like community. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, that's a, it sometimes feels a little more possible to do with other faith traditions because Mormonism can be pretty in, like intense totally. and polarizing. But I see as time wears on and as millennial Mormons get more progressive on social issues than the leadership of the Mormon church who are all like, you know, in their 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. Um, there's, they're kind of carving out room to be like sort of a cultural Mormon I love that. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even know. And uh, talk. can you talk a little bit about Encircle? Yeah, so Encircle is this amazing LGBT youth center in Provo, Utah, uh, which is the town where Brigham Young University is. So I had lived there in 2007, sort of like closet, secret, ninja, trans, like... Going to the drive-thru like every day and playing video games when you were like just kind of in your own 
stuff, but it was, I do want to just like highlight her time there because it was like, Samantha had such a different experience of that area. And to go back to Provo and see these kids just be so resilient and be like, I think they asked you like when you came out and and they were like, oh, that's like so old. And <laughs> like, it was a completely different reality than the one that you really lived there because like, I mean, I just picture you going to the drive-thru like every night ordering two tacos and just like being like, all right, I'm just going home. I don't want to see anybody. Yeah. I was like massively depressed. Uh. So I, like the Del Taco drive-thru attendant was like the only person I talked to for like months at a time. Like I would just go to class, turn in my work, like I've actually been there. Go to but, my yeah. apartment. <laughs> it was terrible. And yeah, and then like fast forward a decade and I'm like sitting playing like cards with all of these trans and gender nonconforming kids, many of whom came from Mormon households. At one point, one of them was like, yeah, was like, how old are you? And I was like, I'm 31. And they're like, I'm literally 15. And they all just like laughed at me. And I was like, okay, I'm being roasted right now. But also like, I'm so glad you found this place at your age, because it saved you a lot of heartache. So when did Encircle get established? I believe it was maybe like 2017, 2016, wow. somewhere around there. The way you describe it is like, like it's such a home and uh, like kind of a place for them to gather and just be themselves and be kids, but also be Mormon. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was just such a fascinating thing that I also couldn't have pictured that existed until I read your book. And it was interesting to see you and the book have the same reaction because it didn't exist when you lived there. Yeah. And I, you know, I have experiences leaving Mormonism where like when you leave the church, people like ostracize you or they don't want to talk to you. I've had those experiences in my own extended family where like things got awkward after, after I left the church and in circles, one of their mottos is no sides, only love. And so Uh they kind of have this like neutral policy they're not going to be an anti-Mormon organization. If the Mormon, if you feel like the Mormon church is hurting you because you're LGBT, they're going to make space for that to be heard too. And I just literally didn't think it was possible to even have a space for conversations like that until I found it a couple years ago. And you're right. It, it's like this amazing remodeled Victorian house. It's really thick carpets, like a piano, like a room with all these books and a TV. It's so comfortable. And I don't know, Corey can maybe speak to this a little bit, but like LGBT spaces in some place like New York can feel just really grungy. Yeah. Yeah, Just like a broom closet or, or one thing that was really like happening a lot uh, while I was in college, there was this thing called fresh cuts where like you would go and and it would kind of like change from place to place. Um, but you'd get a haircut and you'd like have drinks. Um, but it was sort of like transient within the city. Like there was not really like a set location. Mm -hmm. So to have a place that like these kids could call home was just like so much different, even from my experience, uh, growing up in Long Island and like the New York city area. Is this just people, it's like the same thing with the health care that your mentor um, kind of shepherded in. It's like individual people carving out spaces and making these places and opportunities for more people. What do you attribute all the, all the, I mean, because there is like actually a lot of progress in these places in the last 
however many years. Yeah, I think often you do see like the power of individual impact in these places more than you might in a in a larger city. You know, I um one of my favorite people I interviewed was the owner of Wonderlust, that nightclub in Jackson, Mississippi that I mentioned earlier. Her name is Jessie Pandolfo. She's from Boston. She doesn't necessarily like, she's not necessarily like deeply in love with Mississippi, but she says like, I, I need to keep this bar open. Like if I don't keep it open, they don't have a place to go. Mm-hmm. And so she also, you know, intentionally made the bar an 18 and over space where you're like carded or wristbanded or something to verify that you can drink because she's like 18 to 21 are crucial years where you need community. And if you can't access community until you can legally drink, like that's going to hurt kids in Jackson, Mississippi. That's but, so smart. And it's not necessarily a great business decision, right? Like as totally. a business They're owner, not buying wants, drinks, yeah, but everyone in there buying drinks. <laughs> so to say, you can come in, we're absolutely not going to serve you, but you're still going to put wear and tear on our space and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, but she does it because she she cares. And you see stories like that all over of just individual people who kind of become pillars of their their community. Yeah, I think that was like maybe the biggest takeaway for me is like how how much an individual person can make like such a make someone else's life so much better. So many people. I think it's easy when we live in a place like Los Angeles or other people who live in really big cities to feel like you're just a tiny little speck, you know, and it's really hard to feel like, you know, anything you do can be heard or felt. And I think that's what contributes to a lot of depression for like people who live in big cities because you do feel kind of lost and you only know people peripherally on Facebook and things like that. And I think uh, it's really remarkable to hear the deep connections and the lasting impact you can make elsewhere, you know, that you can maybe not feel that depression of being useless or feeling like you're useless when you go to a smaller place and do a thing that will make way more of a ripple effect. Yeah. And I'm from Jackson, Minnesota. Sophia jokes. She, what do you call it? Sophia? Jackson hole. <laughs> wow. <laughs> really rude. Really rude about my hometown. Um, no, I mean, I'm from the Ukraine. You think people don't make fun of me? <laughs> it is a really small place though. And like, I didn't know anybody that was out growing up. You know, I'm sure for a lot of kids, like that would have been a huge thing to just see other people that they could emulate. When I was in um, Bloomington, Indiana uh, with Corey, one of the first kind of older transgender woman, women that I saw was, her name was Rachel Jones. She owned and operated mm-hmm. this local cafe. I think she was in her fifties at the time. But for me, like 25 years old, just coming out, I was like, oh, you can be transgender mm-hmm. in like 50. That's possible. And it just unlocks things for you. And I know Rachel has had that impact on the community in Bloomington. Yeah. I think just seeing, seeing someone allows you to imagine possibilities for yourself. Well, thank you for writing it and thank you for joining us today. And Corey, we're so glad we got to meet you. Yeah. What a fun bonus. If you've been listening to this, you know how great Samantha's voice is. Oh my God. I was creaming myself over it earlier. So definitely buy the book on uh, Audible or whatever, wherever you listen to books, because you're going to want those dulcet tones. Highly recommend. In your ear, man. Get in it. It is so soothing. It's like ASMR and you're learning and she's touching your heart. It's the best. I'm glad you like it because I can't stand to listen to my own voice. (laughs) You're crazy. (laughs) 
Thank you so much, Samantha. Thank you. Thanks. OMG, that was such a good interview. Yeah, that was amazing. Uh, I just, I feel so lucky that we got to interview her. Um, You guys should 100% check out her book, Real Queer America. Also, Love and Estrogen. Definitely. Um, We both loved the books. We love both of these ladies. Samantha is actually on her book tour right now. So check out her website. She's at Samantha Lee Allen. She might be coming to a place near you. And if so, we highly recommend checking her out. Yeah. Listening to her read, I guarantee you is going to be an amazing experience. And uh, her prose is just beautiful. So you're going to love it. You can actually listen to her on Audible. So you can do that from anywhere. Yeah. I'm really pushing that. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but we have new theme music, and that is courtesy of our amazingly talented friend, Amy Rosh. Woo! Uh, shout out to her, and you guys should check out her music on Spotify. Her last name is spelled R-A-A-S-C-H. And this episode was mixed by Mike Castaneda of Plastic Audio. We love Mike so much. Thank Mike's you, Mike. Mike's the best. Um, if you like what you heard, show us some love. Whoop, whoop. Rate us five stars and leave us a sweet review. But if you didn't like us, just quietly leave our lives. Yeah, you don't need to let us know. (laughs) (laughs) You guys, uh, we can't wait to drop Helsinki next week. It's been long awaited. And the week after that, and the week after that, we will see you back here every week. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.